Every week, journalists at the University of Florida's College of Journalism and Communications report important stories for the people of North Central Florida and beyond. As of recent, even one of the lobbyists who were against the bill kind of agreed with this and that Florida is the only state that has this certain carve out for this group of people. She had an abortion when she was 17 and 20 weeks pregnant. So we talked a lot about how this bill wouldn't have allowed her to have that procedure. This would kind of shut down the student and prevent them from talking about their identity in the classroom and shutting down who they are. This is The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Malia Leiden. I'll take you through the strongest reporting coming out of our newsroom and a discussion with the journalists who write these stories. Let's get into the stories from this week. Florida law banning people from filing lawsuits for certain cases of medical malpractice is a point of contention in the legislature. Just last week, bipartisan efforts to overturn the law fell short. Producer Ariana Asperu speaks with Fresh Take Florida's Melissa Hernandez de la Cruz on her story explaining the law itself and its failed bills from the session. Your story centers on a recent development in the efforts to overturn Florida's free kill law. Can you give me some insight into what this law entails? So this law was implemented in 1990 with the Wrongful Death Act, and it kind of centers over um, what legislators then called a medical malpractice lawsuit crisis. So in order to cap big cash payouts um, to surviving members of medical malpractice, they set kind of like a standard. So this law prevents anyone from 25 years or older from suing doctors for pain and suffering in medical malpractice lawsuits over the death of a parent. This is specifically if the parent was divorced or unmarried or had no minor children to survive them. The law prevents parents of children over the age of 25 who are childless or unmarried or who have no surviving minor children from suing for pain and suffering in medical malpractice deaths. So this law is um, dubbed the free kill law because essentially it allows no accountability for these people. Um, However, I think it's interesting to note that if the person who suffered from medical malpractice death had a surviving spouse or any minor children to survive, then they would have a good claim to a medical malpractice lawsuit. And to go into a little bit more, from your reporting, we learned that there were efforts by both Republicans and Democrats to overturn this law, but as of last week, they failed. Can you sort of run me through what happened here, who was trying to overturn it, and kind of why it didn't make it? The three main legislators that were a part of this, these efforts to repeal the law were Representative Hinson, Representative Roach, and Senator Anna Rodriguez. So. It started out with um, Representative Roach, who last year filed the same exact bill. And last year, it met the same fate that it did now, where it just failed to be heard in the Senate. But this year, efforts were a little bit stronger because Representative Hinson filed HB 6039, which tackled the part of the law of children suing over the loss of a parent. And Senator Rodriguez, in an attempt to strengthen these repeal efforts in the Senate, filed two bills, one to go with Hinson's and one to go with Roach. However, 
uh, things were a little bit slow for Henson's HB 6039. On January 31st, the Senate bill that goes with Roach's bill was supposed to be heard in front of the Senate Judiciary, which would be the first time that this bill would, would have been heard. But right before the meeting started, they postponed it. We found out that the meeting on February 7th would be the last meeting uh, for the Senate Judiciary. So to consider any bills, um, effectively killing the bill and its efforts. And you kind of mentioned this before, but Representative Hinson, as you said, of Gainesville filed one of the bills, um, but it didn't make any progress from when she filed it back in October. In your reporting, you speak to a constituent of hers, Sabrina Davis, also from Gainesville. Can you tell me a little bit about their story in relation to the bills? Hinson had some pretty strong remarks during last year's um, hearing of Roach's bill in the House, and she had some pretty big remarks on holding doctors accountable. Uh, Sabrina Davis, having been reeling from the death of her father just after a few months, was really inspired by her words and reached out to Hinson, especially since she's from Gainesville and that is um, her representative. And Hinson was pretty moved by her story and decided to file the bill that would allow Davis a viable claim. Her father was a 62-year-old Navy veteran who died at a hospital in Brandon in October of 2020. Her dad went in for knee pain and essentially Davis said that doctors were very negligent to his care, resulting in an undiagnosed blood clot that eventually led to his death. His knee was swollen, hot to the touch, bruised, and red, which were all symptoms of a blood clot. Her father had a history of deep vein thrombosis, which is a condition in which blood clots develop. And he had previously um, been on treatment of uh, blood thinners, which helped his condition. However, um, when he got to the hospital and he had told them about their medical history, they never administered those blood thinners. And they just kind of gave him pain medication and anti-inflammatories. Uh, when I talked to Sabrina, she said that they ordered CT scans of his leg and x-rays, but she was pushing for an ultrasound and her remarks were kind of ignored. So her dad was in bed rest for, for six days and he was being uh, discharged to an inpatient physical therapy facility. But the moment he stood up, he became dizzy and fell into a sudden cardiac arrest. So he died just minutes after talking to Davis on the phone she, since she had been speaking to him all morning. So after this, she, she felt like her dad's death was due to medical malpractice, medical negligence. As we get well into the legislative session, there are hundreds of bills being considered by our Senate and House. How did you find this one in particular and the story? So I heard about Sabrina's story um, back in October when Hinson's bill was filed. I had gotten a tip from my professor and he was he had put it out in the in the thread where we pick up stories and he found Sabrina Davis who had been talking about her story through Facebook. I reached out to her and we began to talk and it became a four month reporting process. And we kind of just uncovered one thing after the other. We submitted public records requests and there's a lot of history to this repeal efforts. And to your knowledge, are there other states that have a law like this? When I was watching the Florida Channel and previous kind of discussions of this, these repeal efforts, 
um, Representative Roach kind of drives the point that Florida is the only state to have such a law. And as of recent, even one of the lobbyists who were against the bill kind of agreed with this and that Florida is the only state that has this certain carve out for this group of people. Is there anything you're looking out for in the future in terms of this topic? Like any intentions to refile this for the next session? I think these efforts will come back up next um, session because, um, I mean, even Representative Roach has, this is his second year dealing with this. And every single time that he files a bill, it seems like it, it gets more support for it. They had bipartisan sponsors on this bill, which is something that um, kind of didn't happen last year. There was a Senate bill attached to it and there was a lot more uh, voices attached to it. So I think that definitely next year could be another year that we see this free kill law. During my reporting process, I kind of talked to some people for background and they had told me that they think this year it was different because there was different leadership that previously kind of shut down these efforts. So I'm curious to see what next year's leadership will look like and whether they'll hear it in the Senate. Fresh Take Florida's Melissa Hernandez de la Cruz speaking with producer Ariana Asperu. Hi, I'm Sue Wagner, host of Tell Me About It on WUFT. I speak to leaders, artists, philanthropists, and innovators to learn why and how they do what they do. That's Tell Me About It, Sunday mornings at 7 a.m. right here on WUFT. to the Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host today, Malia Leiden. Let's move on to our next story. As a Mississippi 15-week abortion ban awaits its fate in the U.S. Supreme Court, a similar proposal is progressing through the Florida House. Producer Sarah Mandile spoke with WUFT reporter Katie Delk about what House Bill 5 is and the conversations surrounding it. What is House Bill 5 and why is it being talked about right now? So House Bill 5 is an abortion ban that limits abortions to 15 weeks um, from the last menstrual period. There are other aspects of the bill I didn't include in the story, such as tobacco education for pregnant women or women who may become pregnant. Um, basically that essentially tells them that they should not smoke tobacco. And then it also, the bill also promotes organizations like Healthy Start. Okay, interesting. So the bill's sponsor is Representative Erin Grawl. Um, Mm -hmm. What does she say about the timing of when this bill is being presented? Right. 
So Representative Grawl, the bill sponsor, chose 15 weeks specifically because of the Mississippi bill before the Supreme Court. If that bill is upheld by the Supreme Court, then she assumes and we know that this bill will also be upheld. And then, as the story says, if the Supreme Court strikes it down, um, the, the aspects of the bill not surrounding Healthy Start and Tobacco, the ban, will be removed as well. So it, it all depends on the Supreme Court decision. The Supreme Court decision will not be officially made until the summer, and I think it said I've seen around June. But the um, as we know, the justices are right-leaning, so a lot of Republican representatives around the state are hopeful that the uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey and Roe versus Wade will be restricted a bit more. So essentially, they are hoping to restrict those two landmark cases by looking at the viability period, which is a bit vague. Um, a lot of Republicans argue that now with the you know, scientific developments, 24 weeks is beyond the actual viability period. And that's what Bob White argued, which um, he was one of the sources I talked with. So essentially, they're hoping to, that they can lower it to 15 weeks. Could you walk me through just a basic timeline of abortion laws leading up to this, this bill? Sure. So Roe v. Wade uh, established that the viability period was 24 weeks legalized abortions. So now we're seeing a lot more restrictive abortion legislation passing through the United States. I included a stat in the story that said 2021 had the greatest number of these restrictions being enacted. So we're seeing some of these restrictions occur in Texas, one of the biggest ones, um, which is the heartbeat bill, and that restricts abortions to six weeks. So that is one of the big ones we've seen. And in Florida, that um, I have in the story that Representative Webster Barnaby introduced the Florida heartbeat bill, which modeled the Texas law. However, this bill faltered um, in the Florida GOP-controlled legislature, as it did in 2019 and 2020. What is the current mm -hmm. status of House Bill 5, and what are the next steps we can expect to see? So far, House Bill 5 has already passed through two subcommittees, and now it is heading to the House Health and Human Services Committee for a hearing. That date has not been set yet. For this article, you were able to speak with a lot of different sources about their thoughts on this bill. What were some of the experiences and opinions that were shared with you? One of the first sources I talked to, Grody Remy of Alamonte Springs in Seminole County, which is near Orlando, about 20 minutes from Orlando. She had an abortion when she was 17 and 20 weeks pregnant. So we talked a lot about how this bill wouldn't have allowed her to have that procedure. And we also talked about how uh, restrictive abortion legislation primarily affects people of color. So we looked at maternal mortality rates, which are two to three times higher for Black women. And we talked about how, you know, these are these higher maternal mortality rates are caused by things like lack of um, accessible insurance um, because a lot of people of color rely on Medicaid 
and Medicaid does not cover abortion procedures. Um, and then also Danielle Hawk, um, a Democratic candidate for Congressional District 3, she agreed. She talked about that a bit with me as well. And she also talked about how re women's reproductive rights and freedom um, not only includes abortion, but access to menstrual products. Um, and then um, another person I talked to moving to the pro-life side is Mariah McLaren, a University of Florida accelerated nursing student. And she told me that she believes women deserve resources outside of an abortion. So we talked about other resources like adoption centers. And she mentioned that people from the St. Augustine Catholic Church on University Avenue have offered to help people who don't have the funding for children by providing anything they need, any money at all. She said that um, by 15 weeks, she said the baby, the fetus or to her, a baby um, can kick and really needs to be protected. So she said that um, the bill, the house, house, five bill is moving towards the right direction. And then Bob White, the chairman of the Republican Caucus of Florida of Brevard County. So Bob White spoke at the Professions and Public Health Subcommittee, which is how I found him and reached out to him. And he was the one who talked about how scientific development has basically increased, decreased the viability period. Is there anything else you'd like to add that we didn't touch on? Yeah, I think one other thing I would add is that as it stands right now, and according to Gut Matcher Institute data from January 1st, Florida is among the 20 states that provide abortion procedures until viability, which as it stands right now is 24 weeks. So I just want to highlight that 40% of states um, offer abortion procedures until viability, and then 32% offer it until 22 weeks since the last menstrual period. Yeah, as far as other stats, we see that um, the 20-week period is at 2%, six-week is at 2%, and then the third trimester is at 2%. I believe there's only one state that provides that. And then no abortion ban after a certain period in pregnancy is at 12%. That was WUFT's Katie Delk talking with producer Sarah Mandial. You're listening to The Rewind from WUFT News. Stay with us. I'm Stephen Dubner, host of Freakonomics Radio. Every week, Freakonomics Radio explores the hidden side of, well, everything from the economics of sleep to when is the best time to rob a bank. So tune in next time on Freakonomics Radio. Sunday morning at 11 on WUFT 89.1, 90.1. Welcome back to The Rewind from WUFT News. I'm your host, Malia Leiden. We've reached our last story today, 
about the parental rights and education companion bills during this legislative session. It's commonly known as Florida's Don't Say Gay Bills, and would limit classroom discussion about sexual orientation or gender identity in elementary school classrooms. Supporters say it's a way to keep unnecessary and inappropriate topics out of the classroom, but opponents believe it would alienate LGBTQ students from a much-needed support system at school. The Senate in-house bill have been approved in at least one committee so far. Producer Melissa Fato spoke with Carissa Allen from the Independent Florida Alligator about how students and teachers in the Gainesville area are reacting to the bills. It limits discussions about LGBTQ plus and transgender identities in the classroom, um, and it kind of shuts down conversations that um, the bill deems might not be age appropriate um, for students in the classroom. Let me just get this right. So this bill just affects K through 12? It affects K through three, which are primary yeah. grades in Florida. The wording in the bill right now is K through three. And um, if I understand it correctly, there are some local uh, representatives who support this bill. Who are they and what's the rationale for supporting it? Um, I actually reached out to Representative Robert Chuck Brannon, who is a Republican, and he's on the Judiciary Committee in the House. Um, so he's actually going to be involved in conversations about the bill while it's in the Judiciary Committee. Um, but he, he declined to comment for the Alligators um, article. Okay. I'm sure this bill also has its opponents. Can you tell me a bit about the opponents of the bill? Yeah. So something that was interesting for me is that there's actually different demographics and communities that would be affected. So, of course, the number one um, community is the LGBT, LGBTQ plus community um, who says that the bill shuts down conversations about gender identity and sexual orientation at a very young age when kids are still trying to figure that out and they want um, someone to talk to because they may not have the most supportive parents and home life. So teachers are another parental figure they can talk to. Um, so obviously this would kind of shut down the student and prevent them from talking about their identity in the classroom and shutting down who they are. Um, but then teachers also seem to oppose the bill just because it kind of limits the autonomy that they have over their classroom. Like lawmakers and parents are trying to regulate what they can and can't teach in their own classrooms when obviously a teacher knows how to talk about difficult conversations and difficult topics without providing a moral compass to the student. So someone that you spoke to for the story was Clay Calvert, who's a law professor at UF, um, and he specializes in freedom of speech and communications law, if I'm correct. Um, so one of the things he said that um, obviously, although there's the freedom of speech in the United States, um, it's not always absolute in education. Can you um, explain on that point? Yeah. So basically, um, Professor Calvert referred to the Tinker v. Des Moines case Um which sets the criteria for determining whether a teacher is justified in shutting down a conversation in the classroom. Um, and basically the case said that it must pass the substantial disruption test. Um, so the teacher has to prove that the student was substantially disrupting the class. Um, and he basically said that a student talking about their sexual orientation and gender identity it would be very hard to prove that is a substantial disruption. So you, you spoke to some teachers for the story. Can you tell me about the process of um, speaking to these teachers and what they had to say about this bill? 
Right. So actually, um, emailing the teachers is kind of a two week process. I reached, I must have reached out to 15 or 20 of them via email. And I didn't get a response within the first week from one. I also reached out to guidance counselors at local elementary schools, and I didn't get one response. Um, so I kind of switched gears and started reaching out to more elementary schools during the second week, and finally found two teachers that were willing to speak to me. Um, but it is interesting that that teachers didn't get back to me because it is kind of like their careers on the line and a lot of them didn't feel comfortable discussing the bill. And what did they have, the ones who you did speak to, these two teachers, what did they say about the bill? Right. The second teacher I spoke to, Miss Walker, um, she reached, she got back to me and she said that I am a known LGBTQ plus advocate in my school. Um, she actually told me that two of her children are in the LGBTQ plus community and she has pride posters around her room that students have made. Um, and she is very, very open about talking about sexual orientation and gender identity in her classroom. And also, she mentioned that she has mental health lessons. Um, so she is obviously very opposed to the bill. And she went on the record and said that if this bill does pass and does affect the grade that she teaches, depending on the wording in the bill, she's not going to change her curriculum. She's not going to change what she teaches. And she's not going to take down the posters that are in her classroom. Wow. And how about the other teacher? Um, she was a little bit more reserved in her opinion, just because it does affect her career. Um, but she said that she is a teacher and kids throw difficult questions at her all the time. Um, and she knows how to navigate those difficult conversations without providing a moral compass, without telling them what they should and shouldn't believe. Like teachers are a resource and another parental figure for students. And that's what she wants to be. And she feels like this bill threatens her role as a teacher the people who would be the most affected by this, um, parents, children, teachers, are people who are in the actual LGBTQ community. Did you speak to anybody who has a real stake in this? Yeah, I actually spoke to Damon Veras, who is a part of the LGBTQ plus community. He's also a part of UF's LGBTQ plus advisory committee, which is currently drafting a letter to President Fox right now, just expressing the committee's um, dissent against the bill um, and how they want UF to take a, take a stand against the bill, because although it doesn't affect UF directly. UF funds PK Young and governs PK Young, which is a local elementary school in Gainesville. So although UF is not directly affected, they, they kind of are. Has Alachua County Schools said anything about this bill? Right. I spoke to the ACPS spokesperson and they said that the school board hasn't discussed it yet um, and therefore hasn't taken official stance on the bill. Um, but she said that I think her her direct words were the devil is in the details. So they're definitely keeping an eye on this, but it all depends on how the bill will be implemented if it does pass. So my last question is just what's next, right? What is happening to this bill next? Where is it going? Right. Well, we've actually seen that the bill is moving forward um, in both the House and the Senate. So HB 1557 and the House um, was passed from the Education Committee and is now in the Judiciary Committee for debate. And SB 1834, which is in the Senate, um, I believe it was on Tuesday, it had its first um, discussion in the Education Committee in the Senate. The debate in the legislature is intensifying and more awareness is definitely being spread about this bill as it moves forward in both the House and the Senate.
was the independent Florida Alligators, Chris Allen, speaking with producer Melissa Fato. If passed, the legislation would go into effect July 1st of this year. That's all for this episode. The Rewind from WUFT News is produced by Ariana Asperu, Sarah Mandile, Melissa Fato, and Malia Leiden. Our executive producer is Sky LeBron. WUFT News is operated out of the College of Journalism and Communications at the University of Florida. Remember to follow us at WUFT News on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest stories. I'm Malia Leiden. Thanks for listening.